Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rifka Rivera. And I am Frank Capello. So Frank, I finally saw Oppenheimer. Wow, congratulations. Are you forever changed? Once you looked into that neutron, those those atoms exploding before your very eyes I was, combusting. Well, I told you, like, it was so interesting because I really had a lot of resistance to seeing it because I just, I find nuclear war to be one of the most terrifying prospects of, like, our demise and very, very fucking possible. Like, wow. I don't... Unique take. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently I'm the only one. Because y'all fucking loved it. But I was just like, yeah, I found myself viscerally being like, I don't want to go see a visual representation of that bomb. Mm -hmm. It worried me. I was worried. Luckily, I didn't really feel much. I was pretty fucking bored. Hot take. Uh Wow. Okay. I mean, it is a lot of just men talking. So understandable. It's a lot of men talking. um, And... It was three hours of men talking. I mean, I understand. Okay. I understand that it is a doing air quotes good movie. Like, and there were things I appreciate. And there was the well doneness. You know, there's like, you're like, that's well done. I can see all that. Okay, great. The that prestige. aside, the, pre- the prestige, it's black and white. And then in memory, it's color. It's okay. <laughs> yes. Beautiful performances. Okay. And maybe not a good movie for me to see. Like, we think we went to an 8.30 showing. But I think my biggest, honestly, and I'm not saying, I'm saying this was my experience. I'm not going to say that this means anything. I don't know what it means for the film. My experience was I was pretty upset. Emotion. I was just like, I found myself distanced from the film because I was just like, how the fuck are you going to talk about Hiroshima and not have a single piece of Japanese representation and I get it it wasn't about that it was about the man who built the bomb I'm just like and I'm not saying that Robert Oppenheimer is Hitler but like certainly fucking killed a lot of fucking people and yeah it's like doing the movie about that I I don't fucking care like I don't really I I'm like okay I can see the interest I just found that and and you know what a lot of people in this country don't know about Hiroshima. They don't know the no. impact that it had. I just, I was lucky enough that when I was very, very young, lucky in quote, air quotes again, my dad showed me, probably too young, maybe this has to do with the reason why I was really scared to see this movie, but I remember seeing this Japanese film, Grave of Fireflies, which if you've never seen it, is like, it's a Japanese animated war film. Yeah, it's all about the bombing of um, World War II, and it's yeah devastating i was really fucked up by like just when i learned about it and i just realized so many people don't understand the history i think it's fucking sucks that this is going to be a lot of people's first connection to that moment in in time and have no fucking like what because he taught like you're probably sleeping while they talk about like you just don't really understand the gravity of it from this film yeah so fuck that movie sorry sorry (laughs) (laughs) hey you know what people get to feel subjective about art that's the beautiful thing about it you're right i i totally hear you on all that i didn't like i didn't hate it it was a compelling movie going experience when i saw it and and i'm now seeing it this is like three or four weeks ago so i don't remember it as clearly but i agree with you that nolan did not 
translate uh, the act, the human devastation that those two bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were responsible for. And, you know, I was listening to one film podcast talk about it and they were like, someone was like, well, should they have like shown footage of like what actually happened? And someone was, someone was like, no, that would have been like, that would have been like too sensationalist and disrespectful. And I was like, there's an argument maybe to be made that like, that is not the right place for that kind of footage. But but what contrasts that is the sequence of the Trinity test where they show the bomb going off for the first time. And it's unbelievable visual filmmaking. Like, I don't know how they, through CGI, through, you know, practical combustion, I don't know how they created that explosion. Practical, but it is like, stunning, yeah. Stunning, yeah, stunning to look at. And you, you're stunning. really like, mar you're marveling at this power, at this technology. And... Nolan clearly has such reverence for that aspect of it. But if you contrast it by saying like, oh, but we're not actually going to show the actual human devastation that this caused, then really it kind of just feels like a like a love letter to the atom bomb in a lot of ways. And obviously the, the scientific community in the film are debating the use of the bomb, especially after especially after Germany surrenders and Hitler dies and they're like, all right, well, great, we don't need the bomb anymore. And then, so there's like, they, they, they incorporate, incorporate a little bit of that debate. Um, I did appreciate how much they showed how much like the Red Scare and anti-communism played into the story, but then it ends up just becoming a story about like Oppenheimer needs to clear his name and not really, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's about like his personal life and the fact that he was like a womanizer, which are all important aspects to his life, but it didn't. Yeah, I don't feel like it fully reconciled the true human impact of what he created. Yeah, it was a, it was a psychological. It was about Oppenheimer, and I think that was you know in in that psychological journey. And I fucking bet he didn't really. I don't really think he. From what I got from it, I was like, I don't think they were like he really felt that guilty about it. I don't think he really cared. That was like what I got, and that's fine. But like, fuck that. Then then you have then contra. I mean, I don't know. This was and the way they marketed. You're like, this was the Barbin hot. Like when you think about what this historic event was and then they're marketing it with barbenheimer it's so fucked up it's like taking a fucking holocaust something you know this is a holic this was a holocaust for those people and fucking movie like what the actual fuck it's dev it's you, it's mind-blowing to me that's so interesting that you mentioned that and you make that point because did you know that as the barbenheimer phenomenon was pl playing out online because that is like you're saying immensely offensive and traumatic for for people to be making light of this like oh it's a pink mushroom cloud barbenheimer ha 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 so there was actually a trend in japan of japanese people making memes of basically like barbie 911 and being ah, like that's like, so fucking good yeah of like showing the twin towers but like with pink smoke coming out and they're like this is what you did like your your barbenheimer means this is what this is to us like when you do this it's funny for you it's not funny for us so like Here's your Barbie. Here's here's Barb Eleven or like whatever you want to call it. Yeah. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, it didn't sit right with me, and that's all I can say. That was my body's reaction. Like I'm not I'm not trying to be out here being like you can make this, you can't make this. But like the point of this podcast is like, where does the money go? What stories are we backing in America's cinema? This was fucking huge. And like, sure, there's been a lot of amazing Japanese cinema about that experience. But like again. Not many people in this country are seeing it, and we were the fucking perpetrators. Like, yeah, 
And they have that moment in the film where you where he's looking out and he sees like the woman in front of her him skin falling like he starts to see it. But if it's about him denying it, then go there. But it just never really dealt with it. It was like, let's talk about his journey after. Yeah, it was a a white dude's version, a very talented white guy. But like, I think that was like, that's what he was interested in. And that's what kind of America is interested in, in terms of like allowing that narrative. I think that framing it that way is is 100% correct. This was the story of like a very talented white guy who like felt really bad about stuff. <laughs> but it was not the story about what he did and what impact it had on the rest of the world. Right. And people um, are like, that's it's that's fine. I'm like, it would be. But again, we come up against this all the time where you're like, but what movie gets that much press and that much funding? Especially, and I, I don't remember, but I don't think in the movie they mention at all, like in a title card at the end or anything, that like, it's now well known that like military officials at that time were pushing for the bomb just because they wanted to show off the bomb. Like there was no, like there- no. The, the whole, like, the Japanese will not surrender thing has been, like, pretty much debunked. And it was just kind of, like, a few generals or whoever who were like, yeah, we got this bomb, though. Let's show off this fucking bomb. So important to remember, as in, as much as uh, the United States has demonized communists and the Soviet Union and China and everyone else in the world that doesn't play along with their imperial capitalist game, that the United States is the only country in history that has ever unleashed a nuclear weapon on another country. Oh, it makes we're me so the, upset. And we're the quote unquote good guys. So just, you know, important to keep in mind. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. All right. One other thing we wanted to talk about really fast. We didn't think we would get like, we, we were like, we'll just briefly touch on Oppenheimer. Yeah. It was like, we'll just do a quick <laughs> Oppenheimer uh, recap. But we did want to talk about this because it's relevant to the movie we're talking about today. Uh, so a few weeks ago, Rivka, I don't, I don't know if you heard this. Did you hear that uh, Joe Biden declared a climate emergency? I heard a little bit. Yeah. But please tell me more. You probably only heard a little bit because he actually didn't. Um, <gasps> but he said that he but he said that he practically did. So a couple of weeks ago, Biden was doing an interview with the Weather Channel. And, you know, he was saying, like, you're talking about climate change. Like, we quote, we've conserved more land. We've moved to rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. We got a 60 billion climate control facility. And then when pressed and asked whether or not he has actually declared or would declare a climate emergency, Biden responded, practically speaking, yes. So this is Biden doing a lot of hand-waving and gesturing, being like, hey, 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 don't worry. I'm handling climate change, guys. Don't even worry about it. Like, everyone honestly, shut up about it, because I did it. Babe, did you clean the apartment like I asked you to? Practically speaking. Yeah, practically. I mean, I moved the dishes what around a, great, a little what bit. What a great term. Practically speaking. So if you, if you don't, if you haven't heard at all about this discourse, climate activists have been pressuring Biden for years. And now, especially in this summer of like heat waves and fires and hurricanes and places that they shouldn't be. People are like, Biden, declare a climate emergency would give him so much additional power to combat climate change. Experts say Biden could invoke the 1976 National Emergencies Act to give himself power to order the manufacture of clean energy technology, deploy renewables on military bases, block crude oil exports, or even suspend offshore drilling, plus a host of other powers that he doesn't have right now. It's obvious that he needs to do this. We're like at, we've been at a tipping point for years, but it's like if if he is not using every tool in his tool belt to try to save a livable climate, then like what the fuck is he even doing? And a little bit of what we hear from him and the, you know, the corporate Democrats is, you know, 
hey, we just passed this big Inflation Reduction Act, and that had the biggest climate investment in U.S. history. And that is true. That is true. The the IRA included $369 billion in climate and energy provisions, but that is over 10 years. So ah. that is 36... Thir so, it, yeah, it's the biggest so far. It's still not fucking enough. So that is only $36.9 billion a year. And for a little bit of contrast, this year Congress approved a defense budget of $886 billion. So in just one year, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, is getting almost a trillion dollars and climate investment gets $36 billion. So that is that lays out what the priorities of the U.S. government. And it's also funny because it's not funny, but the U.S. military is the single biggest greenhouse gas emitter on planet Earth. So it's just a whole lot of horseshit. And I, I want to bring this up because like, because, you know, for any people who are still, you know, very much in like the liberal Democrat camp of just like, hey, you know, at least they're not the Republicans, at least they're not, you know, absolutely cartoonishly evil. And, you know, they're doing their best. And sure, they're not as bad as the Republicans, but they're not doing their best. And Biden refusing to declare a climate emergency is the proof in the pudding. Like they are not willing to use power when they have it. They are not willing to buck their donors and their corporate class and the corporate classes that support their party. And just being not as bad as the Republicans is not good enough. That should that is not good enough just because they're not racist or homophobic or transphobic. That doesn't, it doesn't mean even that make sense. That statement when people are like not to me, that's just not as bad. You're like define bad in what context? It's just irrelevant. It's like it's all fucking bad. It's all fucking bad, and 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 it's not just Biden. It's not like oh, but what? Uh, but only if we got I don't know Kamala in there or Buttigieg or Elizabeth <laughs> Warren. Like that's not. They're all part of this party machine. Like if the Democratic Party wanted Biden to declare a climate emergency, he probably would. They 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 work together. The only thing the Democratic Party is good at is crushing progressives and crushing leftists. They can't do shit when it comes mm -hmm. to the Republicans, but when it comes to stomping out the leftist faction of their party that actually wants to use power to challenge the corporate donor class, that's when the Democratic Party can actually get its shit together and make some stuff happen. Like we saw in the 2020 primary when they all came together to make sure that Bernie didn't win. Like that's the, that is the only thing that the Democrats are good at. So just a little thing, just a little, just, just a, a small. <laughs> we just had a couple of quick things Nothing we wanted to, to talk say, about. Really, literally, we started. We're like, I don't know if we have anything to say for the topical. Yeah, before we got on mic, we we're like, oh, I don't have anything this week. I don't have anything to talk about. Well, maybe um, <laughs> this. Well, we're just such good podcasters now. It just came out of us naturally. <laughs> All right. Well, we should get to our conversation today. It's a very, very good one. But before we do, we want to let our audience know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show 
You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation about First Reformed with Andrew Perez. All right, we are now joined by Andrew Perez. Andrew is a senior editor reporter at The Lever, where he covers money and its influence on politics and policy. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, really happy to do this. Andrew, this is something I've never really asked you about. Uh, We've talked about movies before. We've talked about a bunch of different things, but I've never talked to you about how you got into this business, how you became a reporter. I've seen that one photo of you when you were, you said when you were like a young little uh, baby and getting to DC, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how how we how we've gotten from there to here. So would you mind just giving us a little background on that? Sure. Well, I went to school in Washington, uh, a school for um, you know uh, po- politicos and wonks, um, the the George Washington University, um, and so. You know, I guess I've always had an interest in politics. I actually thought I wanted to work in politics, and I was really fortunate that no one wanted to hire me. Um, <laughs> so that, you know, that was lucky. Um, I eventually I got like this internship at HuffPost, um, which was pretty fun. And that's how I started doing like investigative reporting was there, actually. Like the first big investigative piece I worked on was there. Um, and then I, you know, not long after that, I started working with uh, with you know the Levers founder David Sirota um, at International Business Times. I was working with both him and uh, and our colleague Matthew Cunningham Cook. And so yeah, I've been working uh, as an investigative reporter and and editor ever since then. And what about your uh, intersection between media and this type of investigation that you've done? Have you always been into films and media growing up? And have you always sort of watched with an awareness? Like, has your politics always been a lens through which you took in your media? I'm not, you know, I don't think it was. Um, like, I, I, I don't think I fully kind of uh, had a had a very firmly, like, developed sort of sense of, like, politics and, and uh you know what I thought about the world until um, it's funny. What should that? Some of that came from interning on Capitol Hill, um, getting getting berated by like you know normal people and like ans- answering the phones and be like, well, they're right. Most of these people are right. <laughs> like they're like uh-huh. not all of them. You know they there's there's frequent flyers in any office who are like absolutely nuts. But some of those days when they were yelling at us, I was like, I cannot argue with this at all i wish i could say good job thank mm-hmm. you for calling so yeah that that was that was i think really uh really informative for me well where you are now uh your your politics and your choice in media and film have definitely aligned because you chose god such an amazing <laughs> movie for us to watch you chose first reformed yeah yes. i'll be honest i had not i think i'd like, heard of it but it it this is a movie from 2017 and it's like, I feel like 2017 to 2019 are vague for me, but I loved this film. So let's get into it. This was a film written and directed by Paul Schrader. It stars Ethan Hawke, Amanda Seyfried, and Cedric the Entertainer. 
And the budget for this movie was $3.5 million. It grossed $4 million worldwide. As I said, it came out in 2017. And the story of this movie revolves around Ernst Toller, played by Ethan Hawke, who is a former military chaplain who is grappling with the death of his son in the Iraq War. And now he's a pastor of a small congregation in upstate New York, which is about to celebrate its 250th anniversary. Toller's life takes a turn, however, when he meets a pregnant parishioner played by Amanda Seyfried, whose husband is a radical environmentalist. And this encounter triggers a series of events that makes him question his faith and where he stands in terms of religion, life and society. Uh, A little bit of historical context for when this film was released, as Rivka said, 2017. So in case we all forgot, after a divisive election season, Donald Trump officially became the 45th president of the United States on January 20th, 2017. Later that month, the Women's March on Washington took place, uh, which advocated for policies regarding women's rights and other issues and became one of the largest single day demonstrations in U.S. history. Uh, Shortly after taking office, Donald Trump signed orders uh, clearing the way for the controversial Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines. The move was an effort to expand U.S. energy infrastructure and roll back Obama era environmental regulations. Uh, Also, the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Also that year, uh, it's record-setting wildfires and hurricanes. In August, Hurricane Harvey hits Texas, followed by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, devastating the island. 2017 was also the year that uh, La La Land accidentally won the Oscar for Best Picture before it was correctly uh, given to Moonlight. So, Andrew, the first thing we start the conversation with, we ask our guests, why did you choose this movie for us to watch? You know, I think it's a really, uh, really outstanding movie. And it's like, I don't feel like I've seen anything really like it before. And, you know, I'm a money and politics reporter. It's it's actually like a money and politics story or a money and in, in, in influence story in a way that's like actually it, it's fairly subtle. The movie is very subtle. You know, this guy basically realizes um, this this pastor realizes that um, that his church is in, in like basically his own job at this at this church is being bankrolled by effectively a stand-in for coke industries right like a stand-in for Mm -hmm. charles coke and you know becomes basically radicalized enough to consider like blowing up the church like incredible um incredible premise here like Mm -hmm. in, in in watching him sort of like you know sort of like lose his mind and become really resolved to doing it um like deeply interested in doing it i find it's like is 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 fascinating and like to me it's incredible it got made um like the the message itself is like is <laughs> just incredible i mean i think that's some of the 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 power of paul schrader although he would be the first person to admit that he has a hard time getting his movies financed but if you like if in watching the credits you'll see that there's like i don't know six or seven production companies credited which if you don't know a ton about the way the movies are financed, that means that this the budget for this movie, which was only three point five million, was really piecemealed together by a bunch of different either like independent producers or production companies. So like, yeah, you're right. It is surprising that this film uh, got made at all. I, I think beyond um, even just like, yes, the fact that it got made because of its impactful story and and the financing of it. 
I think it's really was amazing to watch as well because it is so great. And I'm a big fan of Paul Schrader. And for people who aren't familiar with his work, he did Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, many other things. But that's what he's most famous for. And it's when you're watching this, if you're familiar with Taxi Driver, it's so clearly like this masterful journey where you feel like Travis Bickle is the the sort of like early, there's just many similarities that he's almost this early seed for this character later but uh, Schrader speaks about how he was like, this is the film I promised myself I would never make. And that um, for, he was for quoted this, as- This movie? Yeah, this movie that he it took him 50 years to prepare for and two months to write. But he, for for a few reasons, um, he's he started off as a film critic, which I think is really interesting. And he has written, he wrote a book on transcendental style, which is a, a lot about- um, you know, filmmakers that invoke spiritual sense of the characters and, you know, this really sort of like slow moving space. And he he writes all about this, but was like, I'm not that filmmaker. Like, I don't do that. I'm more interested in like the action and the sex and the like, you know, these kind of characters. He talks about seeing a movie, Ina, by a filmmaker, Paolo Pawlowski, who did this film, Ina. And he saw this movie and that was the moment like after he was like, okay. I'm ready to write the film that I said I would never write. And I think a lot of it he had early on also been, had a very spiritual upbringing. Um, But I just think that you can feel all of that. Like he was in his 70s by the time he wrote this script. And it's just like, you feel just like all of the mastery of craft Mm -hmm. right next to all of the urgency and passion of a lifetime. So I think that it's just like those two things combined create this stunning, like relentlessly sparse film that's also just full of so much existential grief and fullness of character. So it really like if you have not seen it yet, this is a masterpiece and you want to see it. So that was that was thank you for having us watch it, because I don't know, honestly, why I'll you know, it was one of those things that just kind of seemed to, I guess, unless you're in the film world, just rumble off you know well i remember when it came out in 2017 it was like there you know there were some it was it was a small movie and uh if you weren't like really looking for it you probably saw the trailer and trailer and you were like oh ethan hawk plays a sad priest i don't know if i need to see that (laughs) but it is such a gripping compelling and also like very funny at times uh movie yeah, I have written down uh, thoughtful taxi driver for the modern era because mm-hmm. um, it does because Paul Schrader is like he's like, I'm the troubled man screenwriter, you know, like I'm the guy mm-hmm. who knows how to like portray these troubled men as they they deal with like these existential questions. But there, I mean, the uh, unbelievable thing about this movie in particular is that like even though by the end, Ethan Hawke is going to commit a like mass act of violence. You as the audience member are kind of like, I kind of get it though. I kind of like, you know, I don't know if I say I would quote unquote condone this, but I'm not, uh, I'm not like, why are you doing this? You like totally understand um, his journey. Well, and it starts in, so the first scene, the really like the inciting incident scene is when he has this meeting, when he has Amanda Seyfried's character finds him and says, please speak with my husband. I don't know what to do. She's pregnant. And he doesn't want her to have the child because the world is coming to an end as a result of the climate crisis, which is the truth. And he's afraid of what it means existentially, morally, 
realistically to bring a child into this world like that alone I had to pause after that scene because it fucked me up as someone who wants to have kids and who's constantly in this uh existential place myself Andrew especially because I know we've talked about this like you've you've voice to me and if, if it's all right i share that there uh there have been times in in the work that you do where you get incredibly sad because of the stark reality of it so like knowing that like why did you want to return to this movie or we could also speak about that scene in particular because I, that for me that's like that's the bleakest part of the movie is that first scene between uh taller and michael yeah well it, it, it's you know the things like the stories that we work on that kind of give me the most like existential despair are climate stories, especially because some of them are like so sort of like <laughs> like by the book. Oh, here's a run of the mill story we just did. The the one that really affected me was um was about how, you know, all these Democrats uh, voted on some symbolic messaging bill, basically like saying that like the government should not do anything to uh, to limit fracking or like you know hydraulic fracturing like uh you know natural gas methane gas uh exploration and production and, and, and you know it's it's funny it's like this procedural vote doesn't mean anything but it's like these people are sending the message like you're all gonna fucking die like and we do not care like we do not care like we are we are here for the sort of like ride downwards into the inferno like mm -hmm. if if there was real um you know real potential movement like on this issue we would be there to fuck it up like that was the message um that that like that gave me and like i like i didn't leave the bed the next day like i just like couldn't leave leave my bed i was just like no like this sucks mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is like the totally sane response and yet we live in a culture that's made to feel like the same risk. That's actually like the not that's like, get out of bed. Like, what are you doing? Let's like go make your day in spite of all of these things that like that's made. To, there's like a constant continual gaslighting that like it's actually not sane to be affected or to have to like take a mental health day. Like it's totally sane to be like, this is affecting me so deeply. I can't get out of bed. And yet we're it's flipped. And I think in this story, like Reverend Toller, we're so connected to his journey because he's like so like it's so clear and it's so connected to his own faith. But the entire church, his whole world is like, oh, no, you're you're losing your mind. You're an alcoholic. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Not maybe you're trying to self-medicate against like this horror. I didn't mean to interrupt you, yeah. but I just was like, that's totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's I mean. It's funny that's sort of like where he starts in the in the story right as as sort of like well like this is the way it is like you you know you you couldn't possibly like uh encourage your your wife to to terminate this pregnancy cuz like like that's you know that is like that is a an affront to god like that's sort of where it, where it begins you know then then he starts really like thinking about what this guy is like actually um concerned about invested in like interested in and realizes like, oh, it it is like actually like like worth um worth like standing your ground on this subject. Like like it, it, it does matter. Like it, it should be affecting people uh on a on a like really, you know, personal level. 
Yes, and I should say, spoiler alert for any of our... We don't ever do spoiler alerts because we assume that our audience is either watch the movie or they're like, oh, well, it's going to get spoiled. But I'm going to say it this time because, honestly, if you haven't seen this movie, go watch this movie because, like, the way that the plot develops, but we'll... So, spoiler alert, um, kind of the thing that is the is sort of like the midpoint of the movie that really changes Toller's direction is... So, Michael... Amanda Seyfried's husband, the environmentalist, they discover that he has uh, been building a suicide vest uh, in his garage, like a bomb that he's going to, he's planning on killing someone or some group of people somewhere. They find it, they take it away without his knowledge. And then the next day he calls up Reverend Toller and he's like, hey, I want to talk more about some stuff. Come meet me at the park. Reverend Toller shows up at the park and Michael has killed himself he's blown his head off and that is kind of the moment that's kind of like the real real catalyst for toller to then start basically taking everything that michael has said very seriously and very to heart and that's kind of like where the character like the major character development happens and again like schrader the structure of this movie is so fucking brilliant in everything from like it's first it's just the baby then it's like now michael has killed himself and then the farther along, it's like, oh, he may now Reverend Toller might have cancer. He might have stomach cancer, you know, and his his alcoholism is getting worse. And you're just you're seeing these developments take place. And um, it's just it, it builds so incredibly. Just to your point about, again, the mastering in this structure, he talks a lot about the decision to use these withholding devices. And that's particularly, I think, something that's used in this transcendental style. But the withholding device being that like so many movies are just so desperate for you to love them, which actually feels like exaggerated under capitalism. Like just we're going to give you too much because we just need you to love this. We have no faith in your ability to stick with a story or do any thinking for yourself. And so this is very much in opposition of that. And some of the technical stuff is just you'll notice that the framing of just wanting to keep those long shots and the body in the shot and that the camera never moves except for a few times where Schrader breaks his own rule intentionally, but that this is like this kind of thing requires a sort of you're being withheld from from space. You're not following every little thing and getting every angle. You are forced to use some of your imagination. It's slower. There's sort of he talks about using this scalpel of boredom. You can't overuse it, but like there'll be really long moments where you're just being held in space. And I just think I couldn't imagine telling this story with any other kind of like the restraint, how it mirrors just Mm -hmm. this world of the church, this sort of like the restraint that the character has from sex, from, you know, that moment when he has this fish in the sushi bar and just this desire for you just get this feeling of this character being already restrained from things, which I just thought enhanced the existential question of which I was left with of just like, uh, what do we do in the face of this impending grief and doom? I was I, I don't know how much it matters what the filmmaker necessarily thinks as much as what the film leaves you with. But I did think it was interesting in in an interview with Schrader. He did say, which I thought was really nice, because you don't hear it often from boomers, but he was just like, you know, our parents were the greatest generation, and we were the most selfish generation, and I'm sorry to my kids and grandkids. Damn. It was like a small thing in this DGA interview he does uh, with Patrick Shanley, so I recommend that. You can, it's like, they have a podcast of it, but it was like very impactful to hear someone say sorry. 
but he was like proclaimed sort of like I don't have any hope for it for Homo sapiens. Very <laughs> like, and I think you can see this in the in this film a bit. Like there is not, and I don't know. I don't know where it left me. I still had some optimism, but I guess back to our question. Throwing it back to both of you, how did you leave? Did you leave with any optimism? Like I, I, I think I've found the movie like inspiring, and in that like it, like it wakes you up, like it really, really hits you, like like an ice bath. Like it's, it's the last like the last half of the film are just like you're just like holy shit the whole time, you know. And it's like, but it, it like it inspires you to like to to care to like to take to take climate change and also even just like caring about it. Like, you know, seriously, like it's like it's something that, you know, could could motivate people to like to, to really obviously like terrible actions. But like that's that's like rational and fair, right? Like it is rational and fair. Um, and, and, and I think I think it like, you know, maybe maybe like I do think it's presented that way, too. Like even even like, you know, I don't think they ever like necessarily condone what he's doing, but like the, the, the fact he's so angry about it is just and, and moral and right. Um, so, you know, that, that to me is like, is, is, is something that I find like really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, it definitely makes you rethink if you've ever had any reservations about, you know, like climate activists that like destroy construction materials or blow up pipelines. And you're like, well, if you're ever someone that's like, well, that is extreme. And that's like, that is, a, you know, that's a bridge too far. It's like, no, it's literally not even enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it also, this movie is so brilliant in that it is it's a man of faith it's a man of the cloth you know it is like which is something that like you would think that the church any church would be leading some of the stuff some of the fight against climate change and like putting pressure on elected officials like as as supposedly the stewards of god's intention you like when you see it portrayed in this film, you're like, oh, obviously, I'm sure there are p- priests or pastors or reverends out there who are like, how do I reconcile my faith which with th- what I know is actually happening on this world right now and to this planet? Well, it's also a reminder that there there is a long, there are a lot of, there is a long history of activism inside of the church that we forget, at least I forget about because I didn't come sure. from that. But I've met like... There was this uh, nun, Ardith Platt, and a whole movement that she was a part of that are anti-nuclear weapons movement. And they actually would do pretty radical actions, like get arrested, strap themselves to nuclear arms. So there is that legacy that I think the broader church tied to money, you know, is derailed. And I thought this movie got that right, where you can see where it would be derailed from the real spiritual, like what does spirituality actually mean? And I think that was a big question in this film. Well, and so one of the, one of the things that's like really fascinating is in, is in the movie that the church where he, that he leads is this like almost like tourist church. Um, and it's, it's like, it was like, you know, and he's like very excited to share this with, with, with the kids is that um, this was actually like a, uh, an underground railroad uh, like stop. Like they they were helping you know helping people escape slavery like traveling through this church, you know it's obviously a fictional story, but um, that's like you know and he is ready to blow up this church with with like uh with you know an oil baron in it once he learns that the oil baron is like underwriting the work 
And it's it's funny, like he kind of knows this from the beginning. It is referenced like, oh, this guy from Balk Industries is paying for it all. But then like, you know, the guy from from Balk Industries like berates him after um, after he carries out Michael's last wish, which is pouring his ashes into into the water at this like polluted Superfund site. The guy like the very next scene after that is the guy from Balk Industries like berating him about this like oh like no, no politics no politics here like I don't, I, I don't want any politics at this ceremony um and it's because you know he then finds out like oh balk industries is also like you know it's the number five like chief polluter in the country fake company it is pretty pretty clearly a stand-in for coke industries uh, and and then <laughs> So he finds out that they're like a, a big polluter and also responsible for many Superfund sites locally, which is, you know, totally, it's not, it's not like fictional story, completely reasonable idea here. Like very, very realistic. And that guy is underwriting the work at the church. Mm-hmm. Like that's, and, and you know, that, that has to be the case at, across the country. A lot of, you know, a lot of really wealthy people are, funding uh financing churches you know helping helping fund their operations and as like you know someone who works in media i've i've been lucky to work for like uh not non-corporate media but you know you look around like that's it it is very very common for uh for the coke family to be underwriting like media positions like they are they're a big financier even of like npr at this point which is like deeply deeply embarrassing and dispiriting or it should be but it's not just it's not like just them right like they they fund a lot of conservative media they fund a lot of universities i am sure charles coke has has funded a you know funded a church or two in his day it's just it's a thing it is a thing that uh conservative mega donors just love to do i i actually want to play a little bit of that scene in the diner when uh taller meets edward bulk and also just like really fast Michael Gaston, who plays Edward Balk, fucking amazing. Just like you hate the minute this guy shows up on on screen, you're like, I hate this guy so much. May I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. Will God forgive us? Will God forgive us for what we're doing to his creation? That's what Mansana asked me when I visited him. There's, there's been a lot of loose talk about environmental change. There's scientific consensus, 97%. The man who says nothing always seems more intelligent. Why couldn't I just keep silent? It's a complicated subject. Not really. I mean, who benefits? Qui bono? Who profits? That's what I keep asking myself. Besides the biblical call to stewardship, who profits when we soil our own nest? What's to be gained? Can we just agree to keep politics out of the reconsecration service? Yes. Ah, God. That's like, that's the perfect encapsulation of the, the, the debate happening within this movie is that interchange. Um, and it's, it's pretty, co- I love that. It's, it's complicated. Not really. It's not, it's, it's not, it's, it's not. I also love um, when he comes in, he asks for the apple pie organic. He's like, I know it's cliche, but it's organic and it's locally homegrown. It's just like the perfect to me. That's like the perfect analogy for exactly how this works. It's like, we're organic on the outside. We'll write, you know, We'll do all this greenwashing on the outside, but don't bring up the politics. And that's, you know, for someone like the Cedric the Entertainer's character who plays sort of the head of this. And there's they're like more like an evangelical church, even though they're like Methodist, maybe or something. Yeah, there's some they're they're supposed to be sort of this what something of life, you know, one of these sort of more 
even though the church is first reformed, they have a grant. They have like a their parents' yeah. church. It's definitely it's like a northeastern branch of Christianity. It's not as like it's not as wild as like southern evangelicalism, but it's definitely like you know this isn't this isn't the Roman Catholic Church. This is its own thing. But it's the weaponization. I mean, they just get that right. The weaponization of faith against humanity, and that irony, and the fact that he's they're like you're not in reality because you're you're talking crazy for wanting for thinking that god would be mad like no maybe god mm. wants to kill us all and you're like <laughs> that's the sane version that's what you're selling us like actually and that's like oh well, he asks him so we should pollute so god can restore sin so god can forgive and so, you know for some i didn't grow up in any i grew up with parents who were very cis skeptical of organized religion so that would just I'm always curious and drawn to it for the spiritual side but I can see the skepticism of that feels made up <laughs> like yeah let's just create a thing a thing so we can sell it you know well and Cedric the Entertainer's character is like pretty open but like like oh this is a big church like this is this is a business right like and it is like the, the parent church is like giant so like mm -hmm. at some level like it is it is a business it's not quite like righteous gemstones level but it's it is a business <laughs> and like we need to we need to keep it funded like we need to keep it funded and like but yeah then he's also like inventing arguments for sort of explaining taking the cash like outside of just like need the cash like so it, but but that to me like feels right like it feels like like conversations and compromises that people are making like you know against themselves all the time yes like the level of mental gymnastic compromising that happens in today's society and in this movie it's like it's it's it absolutely nailed it i mean this is like a little off topic but you know months ago I was talking to a couple friends who work for uh i'm not even gonna like one of the big uh tech streamer companies not in, like in in on like on the executive ish level or like junior executive level. Um, and I said, you know, you actually have a lot of power on in your class. Like if your class wanted to organize, uh, you could do that, and you would have probably more outsized effect than just like the writers or actors. And they were like, yeah, no, we can't. We couldn't. It doesn't. We wouldn't. It couldn't work. And I was like. No, of course, of course, you don't think that. Um, but that's that's you know essentially what Cedric the Entertainer is doing here. He's like he's like, well, we can't actually, we have to make this compromise because if we don't, then we don't get to keep doing our thing. We don't get to keep having our job. So yeah. Well, it's not dissimilar than movies that we talk about here that we're like, that was a great movie, but it's so interesting because when you look at how it was made and funded, it's literally the opposite of the message that it's giving, right? So mm. even with the Barbie movie coming out being a giant promotion for Mattel. You're like, the genesis of this was Mattel. So no matter what the messaging of it being, like, I, I'm still like, so you're going to tell me that this is a feminist movie and I should not give a fuck that it's made by, like, the the destroyers of, like, like you know what I mean? Like, the creators of eating disorders. Like, <laughs> like what the actual fuck? Mm -hmm. It feels like that same kind of, and people will deadass be like, wait, please don't ask me to think critically about this. You're upsetting me. Are you okay? Yeah. Do you need to go to a hospital? Are you drinking too much? And I just feel like that's a very, you know, they he nailed that feeling. I hope that we can, I hope that we're really pushing past that. But, you yeah, know. Yeah, this movie really nails like the, uh, like you don't get to compartmentalize. Nope, 
nope, you have to think about this. Nope, nope, we can't just, nope, we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna not talk about politics. We're not gonna like, oh, uh, we'll talk about it later. It's like, nope, we're talking about, we're dealing with it right now because like there's no other time. Yeah, you must get that a lot, Andrew. Like, I feel like you must get that often because you probably walk around, like, what is your experience at parties like? <laughs> but truthfully, I mean, like, do you get that a lot from people where they're like, can you, do people get mad at you? Like friend, like I, I know people, people, but like, I just mean like, is it hard to, because you do something that's really <laughs> fucking important and like all, but you are the unfortunate messenger and I'm sure it's really upsetting to people. I did leave Washington, D.C., so I've, like, exposed myself to, like, less annoying people, you know, on a daily basis, daily, weekly, monthly basis. Like, I don't have to deal with, you know, people um, who I, who I like, disapprove of. You know, I mean, look, I've, I've, I went to school at GW. I have, like, plenty of friends who, like, work in sort of, like, uh, you know, for, for industry. Like, it's just, it's sort of like the... DC as a corporate town, like, sure, like, I was friends with, like, you know, some of the people in DSA there, the, like, local Democratic Socialists of America chapter, but, like, you know, most people go on to have jobs where they think, like, oh, this is just it, like, this is the way to, to have, you know, make a living, the way to, you know, to be honest, it is true, right, like, that is probably the, the best way to provide for your family, but, like, I, 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 I guess I have trouble disassociating like in that in that manner. Yeah. And that's why like I've you know, I, I guess I'm grateful I've been able to work for these organizations where like I'm covering, you know, I'm covering industry from like an anti-corporate lens. Like, you know, most money in politics jobs, like you know, reporting jobs, like sort of means like writing for industry. Like, you know, you're working for like a newsletter that's like that gets funded by corporate interests so like you know you can you it's not like it's not to say you can't do good reporting in that in that situation but like there's there's always going to be some level of like self-censorship there and like we don't do that here and i'm i'm, I'm like really grateful for it uh, you know it's it's something that i think is like um special and that um you know i i i hope i hope that like that both like we succeed and that like we're helping foster this like environment where like alternative media is allowed to like grow and prosper and flourish and like give people opportunities to write um with like their to, to, to write how they believe like stories need to be covered i want to talk before we go to the awards i want to talk about the ending really quickly so if you haven't rewatched this or you haven't seen it in a, in a, a minute basically Ed, uh reverend toller is planning on carrying out the the suicide bomb, the suicide vest explosion at the church on the day of its reconsecration, meaning that it's a full house, including Edward Balk, including Cedric the Entertainer, including like dozens and dozens. The mayor. The, oh, the, the governor, the governor, the governor, the governor, yeah, the yeah. governor um, <laughs> dozens of other people. So it's going to be this giant, like clearly political statement. And right before he's about to enter the church to do his opening statements, he sees that Amanda Seyfried character who he has grown, grown close with at this point has come to the uh, ceremony even though he explicitly told her not to come he was like do not come do not come um so he she shows up so now he can't go through with it and then then we kind of enter the space and there was a, a sequence earlier with that kind of like does a little like magical realism where they're you know they're together then they're traveling through space they lie but on each other with their clothes on and just breathe in each other's faces it's so beautiful She's like, do you want to, I used to do this with 
do you want to? And then they do it. I love it. And he's like, he like wants to do it, but he's like, I he's like, okay. It's, and then she's like, hot. I mean, and he's like, it's huh? Hot. Yeah, it is hot. So then, uh, so then, rather than going through with the uh, the suicide vest, he it starts wrapping himself in barbed wire, very like uh, very Christ iconography. He's cl- he's clearly about to go into the church and you know make some sort of a scene, some sort of political statement. Then Amanda Seyfried's character comes in. He pours himself a glass of Drano. That's right. That's yeah, right. yeah, a glass of Drano to to like kill himself. Yeah, mm-hmm. but and then next thing you know, you look up and yeah, there is Amanda Seyfried. Uh, and he doesn't there. drink it; he drops it. Yes, though I guess it's not entirely clear, right? Like that's where it's not clear if if he drank it or didn't. Like it's not yeah. if if this is like his uh, yeah yeah his his post like his vision as he's leaving the earth. Yeah. Yeah. So did y'all think he was dead or alive? I, I think dead because like that's what i wanted to question because and then at the very and then like the last shot is them running to each other kissing one another and then the camera just circles around them for about like 30 seconds as they embrace and having never moved having like not moved mm-hmm. the whole film having yes uh and then well also like this so the reason that i think that it must have been in his mind his last visions is because he's wearing he puts his robe back over the barbed wire and she's embracing him and she's not like ow my hands <laughs> for me, I was like, I think that's the giveaway. Uh, but yeah, what did you two think? <laughs> yeah, she's not like, why? Why do you look like that? Why you got that? Are you bleeding? Yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing like that. Yeah, you know, I guess when I first, when I watched it the first time, I thought that she must have saved him. But on second watch, yeah, like definitely could be dead. Uh, definitely could be dead. Um, and and it also like I, I read a little bit about it, and it sounds like like Schrader wanted this to be like deliberately ambiguous like so you don't know like mm-hmm. he wanted the audience to be split like 50 50 and i think they might have even tweaked the ending like to just abruptly cut so that so that you are like so you're wondering so you're not sure at yeah. all yeah i my experience was i wasn't even concerned i wasn't really thinking like what happened as much as it left me suspended in that moment in that just like abrupt kiss which i loved i felt like hijack I felt like it was passed over to me to be like that uncomfortable feeling of lack of resolution and I think that was really useful in terms of an act we talk about like what activates your audience and I felt like that was a really activating technique but now talking about it yeah I could see him I guess I could see it either way I don't think it matters like I think that's kind of like the the point it's like it doesn't fucking matter that that is true well and he also like doesn't Toller doesn't care about his own life i think like they make that very clear mm-hmm. um including where like you know this this woman who i guess he might have had an affair with at one point like sort of expresses concern for him and it's the only time he in the whole movie that he is mean i to love someone. that yeah it's the he's only time dick. yeah he just he just and you goes really off see on... him i loved it <laughs> he just goes he's like, off yeah, he's on like, her fuck all of you brother and you're like <laughs> jesus dude like for like saying that she like her concerns are petty so like yeah he ha- he doesn't have concern for his own life and I guess you know the ending well, he the has ending stomach is cancer. Like, yeah that's true he probably has stomach cancer. But yeah. I think that's imp- and that's important right is that there's the physical the spiritual and the mental are all tied and they're all tied to this climate crisis and climate and that's the inevitable like doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you have stomach cancer, doesn't matter if you're pregnant. Ooh, that's kind of interesting. Also, the juxtaposition of the two, that it was stomach cancer and pregnancy. Oh, wow. Um, But Mm. that, like, yeah, like, 
in that sense, it was very bleak. And it was sad to hear Schrader was like, yeah, no, we're, there's not like a, there's not like a us not perishing. There's no hope was his, <laughs> I got from him. Um, and yet there is love, right? And yet there is stuff inside of that. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very passionate, like that was a message I got. Oh, there is love. And there is this desire to kiss while you can. It is as much of a hopeful note as could happen in this movie while still like without just like totally giving up the the message and theme of the movie itself. Mm-hmm. All right, Andrew. Well, this is the point in the episode where we hand out awards for this movie. Uh, the first award we give, it's called a point with a view. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. So who would you say has the best politics? Well, it's probably Michael and his politics end up getting like placed on to Toller too. Mm-hmm. Um though I suppose at some level maybe maybe Mary, Amanda Seyfried's character, has the most maybe reasonable politics, which is just like, I believe in all this. I'm just not quite ready to, you know, blow myself up over it. Yeah, I would say probably some combo of Michael and Reverend Toller. Although maybe maybe just I'll just say Michael because you know another like when when Toller is really mean to I forget the the woman's name the character's name that was a little that was a little unnecessary that was a little like well you could be mean and have good politics you can be he mean was and like have he good... was triggered he's got stomach he's having a hard he freaked yeah. out at her well he's also trying to stay on path like he he has <laughs> he has a mission and like her being like go to the doctor like would you know could potentially <laughs> derail the the explosion. All right, I'll give it to Taller. What about you, Rivka? Um, I'm giving it to Michael. All right, our second award is called Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. On the count of three. Yeah. One, two, three. Balk. Edward Balk. Balk. Yep. <laughs> Doesn't get much worse than, yeah, like the stand-in for one of the mm-hmm. Cokes. Well, and it's and it's funny that it's actually like somewhat transparent about that beyond the like four letter name, uh, you know, pro- probably filling its exact spot on the uh, list of polluters uh, on the on the you know on a global <laughs> level um, mm-hmm. on that list. Uh, but like he he actually goes to tour like box facilities and they're like here's where we make plastic and paper like and here's how it's like renewable or whatever and it's like this is like exactly. Like, this is almost exactly Coke Industries. Like, this is funny. Okay, our last award is A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. Oof, this is oh, a tough one. I think oh. I would give it to, I could learn more about Mary. I thought, yeah, you know, if there was one character, I'll be honest, I really like Amanda Seyfried. I didn't love her in this. I don't know what it was, and so I don't know if it was that I felt the women were, maybe she was slightly... Not underwritten, but there was just something there that I found like maybe it was just unnerving and I just didn't like her and that's okay too. But I would want to know more. I I think yeah. that's a really interesting, I think to have a character that's like my partner just killed himself because he was afraid, you know, because he's I'm carrying his child. I'm just like there's so much there about carrying a child in the uncertainty of this world. She has that really interesting moment where she I love this scene where she comes to him and she's like, I'm just scared. Like, I'm just scared of everything. It felt very human and mm. upsetting um, because I know that feeling where you're just like, oh, I'm just suddenly terrified. And I, all I can state is that fact. And it's mm. a, it's just a sensation of fear. And it's free-floating and it's 
I, I don't know where to go. And so yeah. she had that moment. But I want to know more about her. Yeah. I really I really loved Amanda Seyfried in this movie. I really loved her uh her career. I mean, I would like who would have thought like of everyone in Mean Girls, she'd be the one where I'm like, well that's the best. She's great act. in Mean yeah. Girls, yeah. She, oh, she's great in Mean Girls, but like, you know, it's a very like it's like the broad ditzy like goofy character, but like she's really phenomenal in this. I would give this award to the first reformed uh choir. I want to like who are these four kids? Why do they have so much time on their hand? How they really learned that uh, that protests on very quickly, and although I got to say, washed in the blood of the lamb, that's a banger. Like I will, I will put that on for myself just to enjoy. Guess I would probably say Amanda Seyfried's character too. Yeah, she she, I don't know if underdeveloped is fully the right word, but like the the movie's very focused around Toller. Like there's like kind of barely any scenes like where he's not present. Like. I think maybe the only one I could think of is where the um, is where like you know one of the like what is it sort of like the maintenance guy at first reformed like finds all of his bottles oh, yeah. like in the garbage but like that's that's maybe the only scene in the movie that he's not present in um, yeah but which I think like works but yeah her her spouse uh, kills himself it's still mostly sort of focused then around Toller like mm. his his reaction to it his response like there's definitely much less about it or uh, much less of that in regards to to mary it would it was a very male point of view Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's uh, you know raging bull taxi driver like we get it but there's not you know it's very much in the religion and i could see the thematic point of having virgin whore dichotomy here and you do have i mean and then that sort of frames why he reacts to the woman the way he does because she's like i want to be there for you like i want to have intimacy he's like back off whore like you know (laughs) and then like he loves the pregnant woman and because she's Mm. mom you know it's just very that so i'm i would love i would love a version of this by a different director too like this because there's so many great themes in this story maybe you know maybe one day we'll get the the big budget remake that uh <laughs> we're all waiting for brought to you by coke <laughs> coke <laughs> industries gotta have it yeah. okay so andrew before we wrap up we like to ask our guests how how they as people artists just strive to practice uh your values as an anti-capitalist in your own life in whatever capacity it exists for you I think I'm lucky in that I get to do it in my work. Um, Like I get to, you know, I I get to write almost exclusively about like things, people, industries that like really piss me off, (laughs) which I feel very, you know, very fortunate to be in that, in that position. Uh, I guess on an individual level, you know, I do studiously avoid Coke Industries products. Uh, I do, I do really avoid, um, you know, like when you're, when you're buying uh, paper towels, look out, you know, you gotta, you gotta look out. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one thing I watch out for. Um, I guess I, you know, if I, if I know anyone is on any, any company is, uh, has a strike, I will not be uh be frequenting there mm. at that at that point all great answers well angie thank you so much for joining us where can our audience find you and your work sure um you can find my uh, me on twitter at andrew perez dc you could find me on uh, blue sky and you know post.news and whatever other hot bullshit we're using um <laughs> what's the oh in threads, you got threads yet uh, yep I'm on threads. Just, you know, look for Andrew Perez, 
I think ME there. And yeah, you can you can find me writing at Lever News, uh, at levernews.com. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Love this movie so much. So glad you picked it. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we will be watching the 1940 film and Great Depression banger, Grapes of Wrath. Thank you, everyone. See ya.